All right. It's New Year's. Happy 2018 again. There's a couple songs that I like to listen to every every New Year's Day, um, or try to anyway. And if you think that sounds like I'm being an obsessive music nerd, it's because I am an obsessive music nerd. So every year I listen to these same three songs. Um, I, I mentioned these songs. I, I want to make mention of them in particular. One is the song New Year's Day by my first musical obsession, the band U2. Uh, they have a song called New Year's Day. The second is by a band that I love less, but a song that I actually love a lot more um, by the ridiculously named Death Cab for Cutie. I don't know why that. What, I don't know why that's their band name, but it's a great song. Um, there's similarities between the songs themselves. They both have these huge driving drums, which you can imagine is something that I like in a song. And they both feature these lovely piano lines over these like sharp stabbing guitars. And both obviously include lyrics about turning the page over from day 365 to day one, about New Year's. But more than anything, the reason that I listen to these songs in particular uh, every January 1st is because of the lyrical content. Both of these songs have as a major idea the idea that New Year's Day is this arbitrary construction, that it may be a new year, but everything feels the same. It's just a flip of a calendar. From, from, from December 31st to January 1st, not a lot often feels very different, except now you have to learn to sign 2018 on your checks instead of 2017. We are still incomplete. We are still broken. And the songs connect this idea that we're still longing for relational connection. So the U2 song includes includes the lyrics. And it's it's hard for me to just say lyrics to songs I know rather than sing. So excuse me if I fall into song. Nobody wants that. But the U2 song includes the lyrics, I want to be with you, be with you night and day. So relational connection. Nothing changes on New Year's Day. And the other song includes the lyrics, so this is the new year and I don't feel any different. So that's pretty blunt. That's the first lines of the song. There's these crashing symbols. This is the new year. I don't feel any different. Um, So this is the new year and I have no resolutions. I wish the world was flat like the old days. Then I could travel just by folding a map. No more airplanes or speed trains or freeways. And again, relational connection. There'd be no distance that could hold us back. It's a new year. Nothing seems very different. That's what both of these songs touch on. But we still long for connection. I'm drawn to that sense of being totally new without anything changing really at all totally new totally changed but nothing is really new and nothing has really changed it's a it's a sensation that i feel strongest every new year's it it feels really arbitrary but i felt it in other places as well i i felt it on my wedding day and before you <gasps> let me explain though we were now official angie and i my love for her wasn't any different I didn't love her any more or any less or any differently from July 1st when we weren't married to July 2nd when we were. Nothing was really different except now it was totally different. That was a big change. Being married is hugely significant. I felt this way when my mom and dad broke up. Though their marriage was over, they were still my parents. They weren't necessarily very different except now everything was totally different. And that's shaped me hugely for a long time. And more often than not, I feel this way about my decision to commit my life to Jesus Christ. I'm still the same selfish, insecure, sinful guy that I always was before I knew Jesus. Um, except that now I'm totally new. In fact, Paul would call us a new creation. Something brand new. Reborn even. And all of that is true. But I'm not very different. I'm totally new, totally reborn, totally redeemed. Everything's the same but everything's totally changed. 
And I really like that idea. In each of these situations, in my marriage, in my parents' marriage, and in my discipleship, the words of the songs I mentioned earlier ring true. A new day, a new era has begun in me, but nothing is really different, especially in the most critical of relationships, except that those relationships are actually totally changed. It may require hindsight or the proper perspective to understand the fullness of what's being made new, but something about that appeals to me. Nothing's changed, but everything's changed. Nothing's different, but everything's different. Which brings us back to the book of Acts. We kind of took a hiatus from that, kind of. I I also used it as a recap through Advent. But back to the book of Acts, where the themes of newness and sameness and relationships are all over our passage this morning. Uh, It's a perfect piece of scripture to read on a week of reflection, resolution, and renewal, which is what so many people do on New Year's. By the way, does anybody here actually make resolutions? That's not something I usually do either. Um, but the world makes a big deal about reflection and resolution, and so it fits really well with our passage today. So let's read Acts eleven nineteen to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Stop there. Now, Acts, the, the beginning of this passage, particularly verse 19, might feel like a bit of a deja vu. And that's because our author, Luke, intends it to feel like a deja vu. The first three quarters of the verse says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God. So, I mean, there's lots of verses in the Bible like that. But compare it to Acts 8, 1-4, which reads, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. You see a lot of connections here? The red talks about persecution beginning on a certain day, the day of Stephen's death. The blue talks about believers being scattered. The yellow talks about where they went to. They traveled all over the place. And the green is what they did as they traveled. Namely, they preached the word of God, the good news about Jesus. So why is this significant? Why do I highlight the similarity between Acts 11.19 and Acts 8.1-4? Well, What was the big new thing that prompted the believers to scatter in chapter 8? What had just happened to make everybody flee from Jerusalem? Persecution. Stephen's death and the subsequent persecution by Saul and others. Well, after Acts 4, 
Here's, there's, there's a lot of things that happen to continue the expansion of the gospel. So this is all the stuff between Acts 8, 4, and our passage today. First of all, Philip took the gospel to the Samaritans, and then later to a Gentile eunuch, um, Ethiopian eunuch. Saul was confronted and converted by the light of Jesus and was commissioned to the Gentiles. Peter saw repeated visions that convinced him that the Gentiles were no longer impure and could be welcomed into the kingdom, and Cornelius' household was the first such Gentile family to experience this new welcoming of the gospel. And finally, Peter had to return to Jerusalem to defend his acceptance of the Gentiles to the circumcised believers there. And they accepted the decision reluctantly, but eventually with great praise. So, look at this list. That's what we've looked at since the, the death of Stephen and the persecution that happened. Those are some pretty big steps in pushing the gospel further into the world, right? In fact, each step is a significant step towards what happens here, the Gentiles receiving the good news. That's a lot of major steps. So Luke pauses here in Acts 11 to bring us back to the moment that the scattering began, the persecution after Stephen's death and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Stephen wants us, er, sorry, Luke wants us to go back to Stephen before he, he continues on in the story of the gospel really going to the Gentiles. And why is that? Well, it's because Stephen's martyrdom had been a flashpoint moment for the church. One of those moments that changed everything. And you can, it, it boils down literally to a, a moment when Saul saw Stephen, uh, his bloody body, and he doubled down on his decision to crush the church. And from, the, from that moment on, That was this flashpoint moment for the church. God used Stephen's death to galvanize the believers and firm up their resolve to spread the message of Jesus as Savior far and wide, to obey the commandment of Jesus in in Acts 1, to go to the ends of the earth. I I mentioned months ago when 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 I preached on Acts 8 that they weren't fleeing necessarily. It was the way we should see it and the, the wording of Acts 8 is more the spreading of seeds of a farmer. That that God is dispersing his people and he's using the persecution to do so. But it's very much under control. This is not a panic. This is a plan. It's God's plan. And, And so the persecution really brought the believers together and firmed up their resolve. In a very real way, this new systematic persecution under Saul changed everything. Stephen's death was like New Year's Day for the church, a brand new day. The message wasn't different. It was the same hope offered by Jesus. The gospel was the same. But the faith and endurance required to believe in that gospel was different. It, it took a new level of faith to believe it in the face of people wanting to kill you, haul you off in chains. Relationships between Jewish leadership and Jesus followers were already tense. They always had been tense. But now they were explosive. Now it was a powder keg. The gospel was always a hope and salvation for all people. But now those people were driven away from Jerusalem, which was ground zero to both the church and the persecution. They're driven away from Jerusalem, and they had a new audience to deliver that message to. There were new ears ready to hear it. They began to truly grasp the ramifications of who all people really meant. When Jesus said, take it to all people, go to the ends of the earth. Now they're starting to see what that really means. It meant moving further and further and further from the house of Israel. In Acts 8, that meant Samaritans and passing Ethiopian officials. Like the Samaritans were basically Jews. The Jews didn't, they treated them as much less than them, but they were Jewish descendants. 
And so that was a step. And then this Ethiopian official passes by this one person and, and they're converted and that's a step. And in Acts 10, that meant the family of one family of one Roman soldier, that's a step. But here in Acts 11, what had been suggested previously by the conversion of one passing person and the acceptance of one centurion's household explodes in scope for the first time. What's new in Acts 11? Why is Acts 11 another New Year's Day for the kingdom of God? Well, because Acts 11 represents the first recorded occasion where Gentiles, specifically Gentiles, are targeted, evangelized, and convinced to turn their life over to Jesus Christ. Acts 11 is the first time where where Gentiles, it's not God saying, you're going to go, like Philip, he was literally picked up from the road and taken to this Ethiopian eunuch. Peter, he had to have vision after vision after vision, and then he still wasn't sure before finally Cornelius and his household were accepted. But this is different. This is the first time believers make a point of evangelizing to Gentiles. <laughs> no longer is the, is the church forced to come to terms with one Ethiopian here and one Roman there. It's not this sporadic, occasional thing. It's not theoretical. Like when Paul was commissioned as an apostle, you will go to the, to the Gentiles. That was theoretical for a time. No longer can they dismiss Jesus' command to take the good news to the people that they least wanted to take the good news to. And that's the Gentiles. It's here in Antioch that the church really had to come to terms with the idea that following Jesus, it's not just an offshoot of being Jewish, which is what it had been for probably a decade or more. It was a strictly Jewish movement with these few random occasions of Gentiles being accepted. Well, in Antioch, it became clear that following Jesus was a call for people of any political, any religious, any moral, social, any kind of background at all. The gospel was for all people. The floodgates had been opened to the Gentiles and the Gentiles would never look back. Within a century, the number of Jewish converts to Christianity would be dwarfed by the number of Gentile converts to Christianity. Once, once the floodgates were opened to the entire Roman Empire, Gentiles took over this thing and ran with it. In the crucial relationship between Jewish believer and neighboring Gentile, this was like New Year's Day. Nothing is different. It's the same message, the same love, the same Savior. But now after Antioch, everything has changed. Nothing is different. But everything has changed because everyone is welcome. And really, Antioch was the perfect place for this new thing to occur. Consulting the big map omissions, we see Antioch here. Here's Antioch, quite a bit north of Jerusalem here. This is actually modern-day Turkey. Antioch is still a town. It's a much, much smaller town than it was here in Acts 11, but it's still around. You can go there. Antioch had been founded about 300 years before Jesus by a Roman ruler named Seleucid, which is why just down the river there's a town called Seleucia. He named Seleucia after himself. That was a major port town. But Antioch became bigger and more significant. Um, Yeah, there's a couple Antiochs. There's Antioch of Pisidia. That shows up later. There it is. Um, I think there was a few Antiochs because this Roman ruler, he named... Actually, he named Antioch after his dad, Antiochus, and his dad was an important guy. So in Rome, they named important places after important people. So there's a few Antiochs. Um, But Antioch sat on a major trading route between the Mediterranean west 
and the desert to the east. It was this this hub of trading. It was a hub of commerce, of politics, also a hub of various belief systems, obviously. It was one of those cosmopolitan cities of the Roman Empire where all kinds of different people from different belief systems were, were coming together to trade and barter and live together. At the time of Acts 11, it was the third most populated city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria, which was in Egypt. Uh, Antioch was the third, had the third highest population, about 300,000 people, um, which is large even by today's standards. By, in those days, Rome was the first city in the world to reach a million people, and that was a huge deal. So Antioch, 300,000 people, that's a, that's a significant place. And the Jewish population there was probably between 22 and 65,000 people. So a significant Jewish population as well. But Antioch was a morally lax, cosmopolitan city, full of ritual prostitution. There were great temples to, oh, who was the, shoot, I forget. There was a, there was a temple to the goddess of sex, basically. And so prostitution was everywhere in this city. And there's a lot of multi-ethnic trading. In this setting, <laughs> Antioch was very much not like Jerusalem. Jerusalem was very uptight. And word of a new savior God-man would cause hardly a ripple in the throng of beliefs and ideas that were bandied about in Antioch. In Jerusalem, that was a huge deal. In Antioch, oh, there's another God. All right, add it to the list. Another, another name we keep hearing about. But it was into this atmosphere that the church's ministry to the Gentiles first really caught fire. And it makes sense that it was Antioch in a setting like what I've just described. And here, I want to make a quick note because I thought it was exceptional and actually really encouraging to me. And I hope it's encouraging to you. Who is it that launches this history-altering ministry to the Gentiles? Is it Philip, who had gone to Samaria and to Ethiopia, essentially? No, it's not Philip. Is it Peter? No, it's not Peter, who is the apostle. Was it Paul? This newly commissioned apostle to the Gentiles? No, it wasn't Paul, it wasn't Peter, it wasn't Philip. All of these men, Paul, Peter, and Philip, had received word and instruction from God, whether in vision or from the direct voice of Jesus Christ, to, to take this ministry to the Gentiles. So you would expect any of these three men to be the ones who spearhead this huge New Year's change in the church. But this work wasn't carried out by any of them, nor was it carried out by any other hero whose name we are familiar with. One of the amazing things and really encouraging things to me about the Antiochian ministry to the Gentiles is that it was carried out by anonymous nobodies. And we talked about this lots during Advent. People like Mary, people like the shepherds, people like Simeon and Anna are just anonymous backwoods carrying on about their business people until God shows up. Until God shows up. We don't know who first got together and decided they would preach to desert traders in the marketplace we don't know who banded together to serve the Syrian lepers outside the town walls. We don't know who studied in order to debate with the Greek thinkers in the, at the town gates. We don't know who decided to do these things. We don't know the names of the people who did these things. Their names are lost to history, but their impact is not lost to history. We don't know their names, but it doesn't matter. We see the effect. We see the fruit of what they planted. Look at the work they did. These anonymous nobodies toiling away in obscurity, not unlike you and me. They, they changed the whole world here in Acts 11. These anonymous, who are they? We don't even know their names. And they did it by, as Acts 11, 20 and 21 simply says, all they did was preach to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus Christ and were filled with the Lord's power. 
That's all it takes. It's to know Jesus, be filled by his love, and then take it to someone else. Simple obedience and heart-free evangelism exhibited by these anonymous nobodies initiated this New Year's Day for the church. That's all it takes, obedience and, and, and commitment to do it, and they did it together. It, was, it wasn't the, the men from Antioch who did it. It was basically missionaries. It was people from Cyprus. What was it? Cyprus and Cyrene. Um, Cyrene is in northern Africa. That's where Simon the Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus, that's where it was from. It was a long way away from Antioch. And Cyprus was this island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It was a long ways away from Antioch. But those people from far away committed to doing this great thing because they loved Jesus so much and they loved the people around them. And look at the impact it had. We don't know their names, but do we need to know their names? No, we know their impact. They did it on such a huge scale that word about these people and the impact they were having began to spread. Neighbors would see them caring for the orphaned and the sick. They would see them speaking to large crowds in the square, constantly referring to this Christos, this Christ. And that was not a unique word to the Christian believers. Um, the, the Caesars regularly referred to themselves as saviors, as Christoses. They, they wouldn't use the Hebrew word Messiah because they're not preaching to Hebrews. That's the word most of the Christian believers would use, Messiah, Savior. But they were speaking to Greek people, so they used the Greek word Christos, which is the same word. It means the same thing. And so eventually, one neighbor after seeing this, all this work of the church, would say to another neighbor, who are these people? What are they talking about? And the response would be, oh, that's a group of those Christos people. You know, they're always talking about their Christos. They're the, the Christians, the, the, the Christ people, the ones who know and follow Christ. That's, they're always talking about Christ, Christos, those guys. That's who, the, that's who it is. And that's how the word spread. Very simply like that. And the name stuck, Christ people. I love that. That's, that's who we are. That's our title, the Christ people, Christian. It's a fitting name for what they and we strive to be, people of their Lord and our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Christos. People who think and speak and serve like Jesus. People who worship, pray to, and submit their allegiance to Jesus. People in the city of Antioch were familiar with these Christians, these Christ people. In fact, they were familiar to the idea of a name signifying a group of people. Antioch, as I mentioned earlier, was named after Antiochus. So to live in Antioch was to bear the name of a lord, bear the name of of a, a king. And there were expectations and privileges that came with bearing that name, to be under the, the, the name of Rome. And it was the same with the name carried by the Christians. Names bear an extra beautiful sort of power in the Bible. And the name of Jesus' followers, our name, is Christ people. That's who we are. That's what the world recognizes us as, the Christ people. Something new. This name, Christians, is where they were first called Christians. And so that's something new. But really, it's nothing new at all. They're still serving the same Christ in the same Christ-like way. It's just now it's to the Gentiles and the Gentiles have made notice of it and the Gentiles have given this movement a name. Interestingly, outside of this occasion, usage of the word Christian in the New Testament is always derogatory. It's scornfully labeled on people who follow Jesus. Ah, those Christ people. Spat out by haters of the Christ people. Like Herod Agrippa in Acts 26, he calls them those Christians. Um, or the persecutors mentioned in 1 Peter uh, 4. 
Um, whenever Christian is used, it's used as a slight against us, which is interesting, in the New Testament. The name Christian is also found in non-Christian sources. Historians like Pliny, Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, Eusebius, Orosius, Abacus, Sarcophagus, and Gluteus Maximus, although I may have made a few of those up. <laughs> so it's a weak pastor joke, I'm sorry. The name Christian wasn't accepted by Christians themselves until the second century. Until then, they called themselves the way or the kingdom. And they referred to each other, in fact, right here in verse 28, is it? 29, um, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers. That's what they called each other, saints, disciples, or brothers and sisters. It was everyone outside of the church who called them Christians. But the name Christian has survived the ages. In Antioch, a suitable name for God's people was born, the Christ people. This new name signified newness, even though the only thing that was new about their work and identity was who benefited from it, the Gentiles. So it's fitting then that the Gentiles are the ones who tag this name on us. But here's the twist. The home base was not immediately convinced of this new work, which is interesting, isn't it? These anonymous nobodies are here preaching the word to the Gentiles, while the big shots in the head office back in Jerusalem, they're not so sure about this. We need to go check this out, which is, I mean, their due diligence, I guess. Oh, bureaucracy, those apostles. Uh, but they needed to see this work for themselves. And so they sent a leader to check out this work, and they could not have chosen a better leader to, for the job, and that was Barnabas. Barnabas, son of encouragement, was himself a Jew from Cyprus, just like who are the ones doing this evangelizing? Jews from Cyrene and Cyprus. So Barnabas is one of them. He would, he would have more grace for this movement that's happening among the Gentiles than a bunch of the apostles had never been outside of Judah, Judea. Sorry, There's a bunch of people in the home base of the church who've never gone outside of Jerusalem and the area around. And so they pick a guy who's familiar, who, who will know the situation, and who will have interacted with Gentiles before. Most importantly, however, not just where he was from, being from Cyprus, is who he was. Barnabas was known for his supremely godly character. And when he arrived, he certainly saw God at work between the untrained anonymous Jewish disciples and the accepting anonymous Gentile converts. Barnabas was able to set aside hangups and biases against outsiders to see where the Holy Spirit was moving, and his response was beautiful. It was twofold. First, he rejoiced, which is a form of submitting to God. And then he encouraged, which is a form of submitting to your neighbors. He loved God and he loved his neighbors. And those are the two things Jesus says you have to do to be a Christian. Love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all it is. That's all it is, which is all that these, these Cyrene and Cypriot believers were doing among the Gentiles. That's all they did. They loved God and they loved their neighbor. Well, here Barnabas does the same thing. He rejoices, he submits to God, and he encourages. He submits to his neighbors. He encouraged... The content of his, of his encouragement was very specific too. He encouraged the believers, Jew and Gentile alike, to continue to cling like children to their father, their Lord Jesus Christ. He encouraged them to keep it up, keep up the good work. Barnabas himself, being in and around Jerusalem, being in and around this persecution that's happening, he knows that it's not enough just to begin well. And it never is. 
in faith. It's not enough just to begin strong. Barnabas urges them to stay perseverant and to end well as well. Don't just begin well, but end well. And it's a beautiful encouragement from a man who is really great at encouraging. And so with this formal blessing from the home base in Jerusalem, a new day was begun for the Gentiles. A new era, even. An era where we are blessed to be living in, even today. In this new era, Nothing is really different. God is still in control, and he still uses his control to show love to all people. All people. So nothing is different, except that everything has changed. Because in Acts 11, everyone is invited to share the holy name of the Christ and become Christ people, Christians. Um, The story in Acts 11 continues after that. Two things happen. I'm not going to talk much about them. This will be quick. Just a couple of notes. First of all, after praising God and encouraging the believers, Barnabas displays incredible humility and wisdom in recognizing the need for support. Barnabas was a big shot in the church. And when he shows up, he sees great work doing. And it would have been very easy for him to just stamp his name all over that. I am Barnabas, the great. Here I am to serve, and this will be my thing. But that's not Barnabas' style, nor is that the church's style. And so he recognizes the need for help. And he recognizes there's somebody who's perfectly suited for this help. And so he takes the trip to Tarsus to locate Saul. Saul was the perfect fit for this blossoming ministry. The only problem, Tarsus was about 100 miles away, which in those days isn't, I mean, we drive 100 miles. I drove 100 miles the other day to pick up a a mattress. Like it was nothing, not a big deal at all. For them, that was like a multi-week journey, not a small undertaking. And apparently, Saul was hard to find. It says that he had to look around. One commentary I read said that that actually signifies something beautiful. It signifies that Paul, when he returned to his hometown of Tarsus, got kicked out of his house for converting to to Christianity because everybody would have known where Saul lived in Tarsus. But if it was hard for Barnabas to find Saul, that means he went back to his hometown but wasn't accepted in his home, that he was booted out for his new belief and had to kind of live from home to home. So I think that adds a little touch of faithfulness to the story that I really appreciate, that that Saul continued to serve even though he wasn't welcome in his own home and illustrates how these two powerful servants in the Lord understood the sacrifices of discipleship. It's not all about you, which is what Barnabas shows here, and there is a cost to your discipleship. People you love may turn from you, which is what Saul shows. Upon returning to Antioch, when when Barnabas and and Saul return to Antioch. There's no difficulty in uniting Jew and Gentile there, like there was in Jerusalem. This was not a big deal in Antioch. Um, For Peter, remember, he had the circumcised believers grill him hard. What are you doing among these Gentiles? Who do you think you are? What's going on here? It wasn't like that in Antioch. Much more open and accepted there. Because Because Antioch was the cosmopolitan city that it was, racial and religious differences meant less. And the gospel gospel could be shared and spread and accepted much more rapidly among the Gentiles. This is precisely what happened. Paul and Barnabas spend a whole year in this hotbed of evangelism, preaching about the Christ and claiming hundreds of souls for the Christ. So that's one of the little stories. After that, there's the brief story of the famine relief where um, Agabus, who was a prophet, and by the way, prophet, that was... uh, um, the church didn't really have a hierarchy at this point, but it kind of did. The, the highest level was apostle, uh, like like Saul, like Peter, and the other 11. 
That was the highest office you could have. But the next highest, and Paul says this in a couple of his letters, the next is prophet. It was like there's apostle and then there's this office of prophet. It was highly, highly respected. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, as well as Ephesians 4, Paul declares the role of prophet being the second highest, most authoritative ranking. Um, to be a prof- prophet, I mean, when the Holy Spirit came, what's the first thing that happened? Tongues, right? Tongues happened. And tongues is when you speak the inspired word of God in a language that people don't know. Well, prophecy is speaking the inspired word of God to people in a language they do know. It, it's very similar. Um, so when Agabus spoke, I don't even know if Agabus is a boy or a girl. I think it's a, I think it's a guy. I don't, I don't even know. Um, but when, when Agabus spoke, those words had great authority, great power. And he spoke of a, of a famine coming. And so when he said that, you better believe people listened. There's a famine coming. And so they, they got ready. In fact, there's archaeological evidence that this is, was a real thing. Outside of the Bible, people say there was a famine throughout the Roman Empire in the 40s AD. And the one that struck Judea the hardest was about 46 AD. I just always think it's cool when extra-biblical sources confirm things in the Bible. I just always think that's neat. feels a little like a stamp of validation. And so we know this famine really did happen. What's new, and we're talking a lot about newness here, what's new and noteworthy about this famine is the source of relief for it. Jerusalem had sent Barnabas as support to the Christians in Antioch who were evangelizing the Gentiles. And this nourished the effort to expand the kingdom away from the home base. We just talked about that. Well, here, the favor is returned. When the home base was in need, the smaller, less significant outpost was the one who sent aid back to Jerusalem to literally nourish the brothers and sisters in the kingdom. They had done, the home base had done the nourishing for the outpost. Now the outpost is returned with favor and nourishing literally the home base in return. It's a beautiful portrait of reciprocity. And I talked a lot about reciprocity when we studied Luke. Jesus has a lot to say about reciprocity and none of it's good. Jesus hates reciprocity. That was the whole Jewish system was based on, I'm doing this good thing for you because I know that in return, you will do a good thing for me. That's the only reason I'm helping you, showing you compassion and love. It's because I know you'll pay me back. And Jesus shattered right through that. He did good to people who could never repay him, ever. Lepers, impoverished widows, all kinds of people. And Jesus says, if if you want to be my follower, that's the kind of reciprocity. You do something good and you'll get nothing in return. Nothing. Expect nothing except favor in God's eyes. So reciprocity is a bad thing, but here we see that reciprocity, but what makes it different is that it's another example of selfless and servant-hearted giving directed to those in need. Jesus doesn't say, if you receive a good thing, you never have to pay them back. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, don't base your reason for giving on getting in return. But if, if somebody does something good and kind to you, of course you want to repay them. And that's what this is. And it's good. It's, it's selfless. It's sacrificial. It's something, some small place, like Clyde, doing something great for something bigger. The kingdom home base in Jerusalem. And so I, I thought that was really cool. But what's new here is the sense of the planted seed growing mature enough to sustain and support the, the, the plant that it came from. It's the child caring for the parent after the parent has raised and cared for the child in her infancy which is what Jerusalem had done for Antioch. And now Antioch's returning the favor. It's a picture, more than anything, of long-distance community. 
of brothers and sisters being far away but caring for each other nonetheless. When one is in need of validation and people to serve the growing need, Jerusalem sent one of their most precious resources in Barnabas. And now, in return, Barnabas is chosen as the one to to deliver tangible care and love and need to serve the needs of Jerusalem at a critical time. Again, these small, anonymous nobodies in Antioch demonstrate Christ-like sacrifice, service, and love to the big shots in the capital city. Not to be repaid, but to share where there is a need, which is what we're called to. It's a beautiful portrait of communities of Christ people fulfilling each other's needs, which is kind of the goal of this here as well. There's nothing new about that, and yet this in Acts 11 is totally new and totally fresh. The outpost supporting the home base. Relationships between small and big, known and unknown, and most significantly, largely Gentile Antioch and largely Jewish Jerusalem, caring for one another. Those walls are broken down because of love for God and love for neighbor. And it's a new day for the church because of it. And that's the root message for us this morning. That's what I'm trying to get at. In all of these ways, what is new is old, and what is common is fresh. The church evangelizes mass crowds of Gentiles. That's a new day for the kingdom, specifically targeting and evangelizing Gentiles. That's new. But really, there's nothing new about it at all. That was the plan going all the way back to Abraham. That is not new, except now they're obeying it in a new way. The people doing the work do not have famous names. In fact, to history, they have no name at all. This is new. Usually we have big names attached to big evangelism movements, names like Peter or Paul. This is new. But there's really nothing new about it. Anyone can love God and love their neighbor. You can do that, and you can make a difference in history in a very real way because of it. You can expand the kingdom, even you and I, as anonymous as we are. And speaking of names, these servants of Jesus are given a new name here in Antioch, Christians, the Christ people. But this name is not a new thing. It's what they've always been. They've always been people who love, follow, praise, and submit to the Savior who is called Christ. That's not new. But this new name signifies something. It's somebody from outside giving it to us. They see us as the Christ people, and they label us accordingly. And finally, it's a new day for the church in Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30, when the non-famous, largely Gentile outpost uh, in Antioch becomes the ones who sustain and support the mother church in Jerusalem. That's new. It's beautiful. But it's not new. It's not new either. From the beginning, God's people have been called to care for and assist each other in times of need. It's just who this church population happens to represent and in who they're helping. That's what's new. We've always been called to help one another. But this changed how the community viewed each other and viewed support forever. And so... We're one week into the new year. None of you have made any resolutions, so you have no resolutions to keep. But hopefully you're still thinking about things that are new. I may not feel any different. Nothing changes on New Year's Day, as you too said. Except that everything can change. Everything can change when we are committed to loving our Christ and loving our neighbor. Relationships can be healed and redeemed, which is what we, we see all throughout here. Relationship between Jew and Gentile, between small outpost and home base. Relationships can be healed and redeemed, even relationships where there had been high and strong walls built up for years. In Jesus, those walls can be crushed, broken down. In our kingdom, nothing ever really changes, except that everything is constantly changing all the time, especially you and I. Especially you and I. Nothing's really different about us except everything has changed. 
That's true in the kingdom at large. That's true in you personally. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, again, thank you for making us new. Thank you for the story here in Acts 11. It's a new year. Nothing feels very different. But in you, we are completely different, completely changed, a new creation, reborn. And we thank you for that and celebrate that. And I pray that just like the the anonymous people here in Acts 11, that even though we're not famous and our names may not go down in history, help us to be faithful servants to you, to love you and love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, And in so doing, really change history forever. We thank you for the newness that we have in you, Jesus. We celebrate that and we praise you for it. Continue to make us new and to make those new things visible to us so we can see you at work and praise you. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.